Good afternoon. Uh, it's good to see everybody here. Welcome to Zoe Community Church. If you are new or visiting, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you're here with us. Every week we seek to open up God's Word. That's why we sing that song. That's why we open up the Bible. And all we want to do is not hear the words of me, obviously. No one wants to hear that. Um, but we want to hear what God has to say, what God has for us, and what He has said in the scripture. So if you could open your Bibles to 1 Samuel, we're getting back into our series in 1 Samuel. We took a break for a couple of weeks. Uh, we'll be in 1 Samuel 10, if you want to flip there, 17 through 27, kind of a shorter passage. Uh, but we're preaching through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. That's the plan, 1 Samuel. Uh, we're calling this part of the series or this half of it after God's own heart. And you'll see why in a little bit, especially when we get to the story of David later on in the book. But right now we're in the story of Saul, 1 Samuel 10, verses 17 through 27. Uh, once you're there, I'll read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get after it, okay? 1 Samuel 10, verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Verse 20. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin, uh, the Mat or excuse me, he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There was none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. And Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. This is the word of God. Will you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this afternoon, and we know that you have a word for us. God, you always have a word for us in your word. It's oftentimes just us who are blinded, who are deaf to what you say. Even as we read in the scripture reading, God, a lot of us, and oftentimes um, even your children, were hardened of heart. So God, as we come before your word, God, I pray that you would soften us up. I pray that you would open up our eyes and our ears that we might receive what your word has to say. And God, we know that we desperately need this word from you. And God, I pray for those of us who genuinely and truly want to live for you from their hearts. God, I pray that this word would be food for them and strength for them, a lamp to their feet, that they might seek you. God, we ask that your spirit would help us. We pray that your son would be glorified. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever heard a pastor say something like, God told me, fill in the blank, right? Like God told me that I needed to plant a church in the DFW area, or God told me that I needed to marry this girl named Christine, or God told me that I needed to be a pastor. God told me that I needed to go into ministry. God told me that I needed to do this or that. This or that, God told me. I was watching the sermon a while back, and the preacher was not the main pastor of the church. 
So he was a little bit less comfortable up there, and he was also kind of giving some background information about who he was, you know, kind of introducing himself. This is a big church. And he was talking about how he had met his wife, how he knew that she was the one. And so he's sharing, and he said, God told me. He said, I remember I saw her, and God told me this was your wife. This is your wife. You know, he said, I saw her. She was 14, and I knew even then. And I'm just watching his face because it's a video, but obviously everyone in the congregation picked up on the she was 14. That's everyone's like, ew, what, like, what's going on with this guy? And he realized it. I could see it on his face. And he was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I was 14 too, okay? I just knew. We were high school sweet. He's trying to like backtrack. Try. I, we're high school sweethearts, you know, supposed to be romantic, but it came off creepy. And that sermon forever lodged itself in my memory, not because of what it was about, because honestly, I don't even remember what it was about. I don't remember the passage, but it was a warning to me as a pastor. Be careful what you say, right? Never bring up the age of your wife. Christine was like 20-something, okay, when I first saw her. Now, the reason I bring it up isn't just because it's funny. We can laugh at that other pastor and his faux pas. But I bring it up because it's a prime example about, of how some people just throw it out there. Not just pastors, but people in everyday conversation, sharing about their lives. God told me to do this. God told me to do that. What does that mean? And what does it mean when we are faced with decisions, right, big and small, And you've heard people say that before God told me that I needed to go this place to this place or to that place. We're faced with decisions like that, but it doesn't seem like God really has that kind of relationship with us because we pray. And maybe you even ask the pastor, what should I do? I've been praying and God hasn't told me anything. Now, uh, it's kind of like this old lady I heard once. uh, She came home from a church service And uh, the pastor was talking about his vision for the church and how God had told him what to do. And she had said, I wish God would talk to me like that. You know, some of us, we want that. Now, the truth is, okay, most of the people that I've talked to don't seem to mean that they heard an audible voice from God, right? If you press them, it's not like God said, that's your wife explicitly. It was more of a premonition, right? An impression, a leading, a prompting, a feeling even, that they needed to go in this direction or to to do this thing. But the problem still remains. What if you have to make a major decision and yeah, you're not expecting a voice from God, but you still don't have that feeling? Or what happens if you do have a feeling, but how do you know it's actually from God, right? You know, people talk about things like open doors and closed doors when it comes to the will of God. Like just wait for God to open a door. But how do you know that open door isn't a trap from Satan? How do you know it's not your own sinful, fleshly desires? How do you know it's not coming out of a deep-seated idolatry? How do you know? How do you know that the open, I mean, the closed door, excuse me, isn't a test, right? The Bible talks a lot about perseverance, right? Pressing forward, walking by faith, even when it seems like sight isn't working. So how do you know what the will of God is? And the thing is, we all face crossroads in our lives where if we go one way, it'll lead to something. And if we go the other way, it'll lead to something completely different. You'll have a totally different life if you marry this person versus that person, or if you move to this city versus that city. And we all face daily decisions that are sometimes no less important. Am I supposed to talk to this guy on the street who's just right there? Is this part of God's plan for me that I would reach out to him? What does it mean that an old friend texted me out of the blue? I haven't thought about them in years. Am I supposed to wear this shirt or that shirt? Where and in what ways does God want me to serve him? I mean, we face these, kind of, these kinds of questions all the time, especially if you're the kind of person who wants to live for God, who wants to be led by God. So the question is, how do we live by the will of God? And I have a confession. God didn't tell me to plant a church here. I'm not saying he didn't. I'm not saying he told me not to do it. And I'm like, I'm going to do it anyway. Right? It's not that. But he didn't tell me to plant a church here. He didn't tell me to call it Zoe Church. He didn't tell me to marry Christine. He didn't even tell me 100% with this overwhelming feeling that I have to be a pastor. I mean, just to lay my cards out on the table. And yet, also to lay my cards out on the table, I don't think 
That's how we're supposed to live by the will of God at the end of the day. And that's what we'll be getting into in this text. Now, you might be wondering, okay, what does Saul becoming king and kind of these random things happening, worthless fellows saying, we don't want this guy. What does this have to do with the will of God? Now, we've been out of 1 Samuel for a couple of weeks. Like I said, maybe you forgot we had Easter and then we had the biblical counseling thing last week. Um, But what has happened just recently is that Israel wanted a king. Okay, they actually asked for this. Do you remember that? And God, through Samuel, said that this is a bad idea, that this is actually wicked and evil. They still wanted a king. God warned them, okay, like, if you ask for a king, he's going to take from you. He's going to take your children to serve him. He's going to take your stuff, your resources. They said, still, we want a king. So God tells Samuel, give them what they asked for. This is what you want. You'll get it. And so God chose Saul, son of Kish, to be king. But if you remember how it all went down, it happened kind of behind closed doors, right? All of a sudden, we're like on this farm, and Saul is looking for these lost donkeys, and then he runs into Samuel, just happens to be in the same area, and he finds the donkeys, but he becomes the first king of Israel, and it was God's will that Saul would be chosen. It was the plan. Even the donkey thing, that was God. Samuel being there, that was God. He is anointed. Now, the thing is, only two people know that this is God's will at this point, Samuel and Saul. If you remember, uh, Saul's uncle is like, oh, you talked to Samuel? What did he say? And he said, nothing. He just said the donkeys were found. He didn't even tell his own family. No one knows that Saul is king. And it's only here in our passage this afternoon that God reveals his choice, that he reveals his king, right? His will, his plan to his people. And there's a major lesson to be learned here if we actually take the time to walk through it about the will of God, not just for kings, not just for prophets, but for anyone who wants to know what it means to be led by the will of God. So let's get into it. We'll split up the text under three headings as we normally do. Okay, first, the conviction. Okay, the conviction. This passage, in a sense, is a coronation. You could call it that. We read it already. But the interesting thing is, it doesn't start with a ceremony. It starts with conviction. Now, what is conviction? There are a lot of different ways we use this word. Um, But I was looking up, okay, what's, you know, the definition of conviction? What are some stories about conviction that I could use to illustrate? And there was actually a movie called Conviction that came out about 10 years ago. Any of you guys seen it? Me neither. I never heard about it before. I think it's like Hilary Swank or something. But anyway, it's based on a true story. And uh, I think I had heard this story before. Maybe you have too. But it's about this guy who was wrongfully convicted of murder and he was sent to jail for life, right? And his sister, uh, who was really close with him, she believed, she was the only person who believed that he was innocent. And so she decided, okay, if no one's going to fight for him, I'm going to do it. So she went to college, right? She went back to college. She got a degree. She applied to law school. She went to law school, became a lawyer just to try to free her brother. And the crazy thing is, okay, she's dedicating her life to this. It took, I think he was in jail 20 years, Okay, but she fought for him for 20 years, and then DNA testing came out, and they were able to use that, and it turns out he was innocent, and he, he was free. Spoiler alert if you want to watch that movie. I doubt anyone wanted to. But he was in jail for 20 years, even though he knew he was innocent, because he was convicted. Hence, conviction, the title. See, the issue with the word conviction is that we hear the word used in other ways than this, usually. Right, especially in church. Right? You might have heard someone say this after like a sermon, right? Like, I was really convicted by that, or I felt convicted. See, the thing is, we're talking about guilt, but in terms of the movie versus how we feel at church, there's two different senses. Okay, we talk about conviction objectively, and we talk about conviction subjectively. Oftentimes, church people talk about conviction in the subjective sense. I felt it. But here, in this passage, and in the movie, it's the objective sense of conviction. You are guilty, whether you feel it or not. God speaking through Samuel as the judge declares that the people of Israel are guilty for what they have done. So what do they do? Look at the text, verse 17. 
Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Okay, so just to kind of set the scene here, Samuel has gathered all of the representatives of Israel together at Mizpah to stand before God. And God starts by bringing up their past history. Now, at first you might be like, okay, we already know this. Why are you even bringing this up? It's because this is covenant language. Okay, he's bringing up the terms of their relationship. This is how they kind of know each other, you could say. God had freed them from Egypt. He brought them to Sinai. And he said, when he made a covenant with them, I will be your God. You will be my people. He's bringing up the covenant. He chose Israel. They have a relationship It's an immense privilege, and this is the context for what he says in verse 19. But today, you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. See, you might have been wondering, why is it such a big deal that they asked for a king? Is that really such a bad sin? They didn't murder anybody. They didn't make a golden calf again. The reason why it's such a big deal is because in asking for a king... They have rejected God as being their king. They're pushing him away. God who had done so much for them. And if you've been with us, you know this isn't the first time that God has said that this is a terrible thing that they have done. It's not even the second time he's brought it up. This is the third time that he has said, you have done something evil in asking for a king. See, you got to understand it in terms of the relationship. Because technically, you could argue that it's not that bad. Again, right, it's not murder. It's not a golden calf. You can go to Deuteronomy 17 and say, didn't your law already say that we're going to have a king eventually? It did, and it does. The problem isn't so much what they did. It's how they did it. It's why they did it. They wanted to be like the other nations. They were pushing away this privileged position of being God's own people. I mean, it's crazy. I will be your God. You will be my people. Who was blessing who in that relationship? Okay, who was out of their league in that relationship? Even though God had condescended himself to be their God, they were like, no, we don't want that anymore. We just want to be like everyone else. Stop smothering us. See, that's the sin. It's the rejection. And sometimes in Christianity, I think we get into this rut, okay, to kind of bring it to our day and our time. We get into this rut of just doing things for God, right? Of action for God. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's good. I think we might need more of that in our lives, but it comes down to kind of a rule-based way of living the Christian life. There are things to do, things not to do, and you're doing well if you're doing the things you're supposed to do and avoiding the things you're not supposed to do, right? If I'm going to church, serving, reading my Bible, teaching my kids about Jesus, sharing my faith, praying, then I'm living the Christian life very well, right? If I'm not smoking or chewing or going with people that do, if I'm not falling into bad things, fighting with my spouse, losing my temper, giving into lust, getting scared when we have an opportunity to evangelize and chickening out, as long as I'm kind of walking in this certain way, then I'm good, then I'm godly, then I'm close with God. But the thing is, if you're not thinking about God, you're not close with God. That's the thing. It's not just a series of actions or, quote-unquote, following the rules. If we don't want to know God more, if he's not on our minds and on our hearts during the day and throughout the week, if we're not seeking his face, it's not good. That's kind of the idea. God's not pleased with that, no matter what good works you're bringing to the table. I mean, I think you guys can understand this when we put it on the ground, right? Like parents, right, with kids, And some of you guys know this even with your own parents, right? Maybe your parents provided everything you needed, right? They worked hard and they bought you clothes and food and they took you on nice vacations every once in a while. But at the end of the day, you grew up and you realized, I don't know this guy at all, my dad. I don't know this woman at all, my mom. We don't have a relationship. They never spent time with me. We We didn't talk. It can be this way in church too. You can go to the same church for years, right? Showing up every week, you hear the sermon, you basically agree with stuff, maybe even volunteer every once in a while, but you don't know anybody. You have no deep relationships with your brothers and sisters. 
I'm not trying to be all like, that was a little too intense there. Like, come on, man, get to know somebody. But, I mean, we should. We should. You never get involved. You never get deeper with anyone else. Some people, they show up at church, they never get to know God, which I think is the ultimate travesty. God cares about the relationship. That's what he's bringing up here. He is going to make Saul king, but he wants them to know that there's something bigger going on here. See, we were made to know God and be known by him. It's not just about breaking rules. That's not just what sin is. It's rejecting him as our God. So if you look at the text in light of this, right? It's, I will be your God, you will be my people. What would you expect God to do here when he brings up their guilt? He's like, okay, you rejected me. I'm going to, what? I'm going to reject you back. And he tells them to line up. And this is a scary thing if you know your Old Testament. Verse 19, he says, Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Now remember, they got no idea. Okay, They don't even know that Saul has already been anointed king. They don't know that Samuel already knows this. Literally no one knows. So they're not thinking, okay, he's going to pick a king right now. They're remembering what happens when God tells them to line up. And when was the last time that happened? Joshua chapter 7. You don't have to turn there um, because... Uh, Usually me and James go through the sermon beforehand, usually with Eric too, he's not here. Um, and I went to Joshua 7 and I was like talking about all this stuff. And James said, you don't have to turn there, dude. It's like too long. I spent like 40 minutes there. So thank James later that the sermon will be shorter. But let me just tell you what happened in Joshua 7. You might know this story. A guy named Achan stole some stuff from Jericho. Okay, so long story short, Jericho was this unassailable city with these crazy big walls, right? But God just had to march around. He toppled the walls. He gave them the victory. But he said, don't steal anything for yourself. Don't be greedy. Achan stole stuff. Right? So they go to another city, Ai, which is weaker. And they're like, for sure we're going to win, right? God is with us. But then they lose and people die. And they have no idea why. Joshua asked God, he says, why did this happen? And he says, because someone stole. He said, tell the people to line up exactly like this. So they line up all the people and they take people by their tribe and by their clan. Eventually they get to the household of Achan and God kills Achan. God kills, it's a crazy story. You can read it in Joshua 7. But Achan was found by Lot and he faced the consequences for his greed, which really doomed the people of Israel to failure in that engagement. He died for his sin and for the consequences of what his sin caused. So the people here are called to line up, and you're thinking, uh-oh, right? Like God has said three times, you shouldn't have asked for a king. This was a wicked thing for you to do. And now he says, line up. You might be thinking, okay, everyone who wanted a king is going to be maybe killed for their sin or disciplined in some way. But we read the text, God doesn't punish them, he gives them a king. Now, if you're really thinking, you know, on the next level, you might be thinking, okay, well, Saul actually is the punishment, okay? It's a slow-burning punishment, but even so, okay, he doesn't kill them. You get what I'm saying? God doesn't punish them in the way that they expect. So God declares them guilty. He convicts them objectively. Why? If there's no sentence, there's no punishment. The reason is, it's because he wants them to be convicted subjectively. And this is the most, or one of the most important things to get just from this entire book from this passage, that it's not just about the actions you take. It's about the relationship you have with God. He wants you to turn back to him. That's why he tells you you're guilty so that you will repent. If you think about it, Saul is already anointed. Whether they repent or not has no bearing on what's going to happen. He's going to be king no matter what. It's not going to change the future, so to speak. God's will in terms of event is set. So the reason God convicts them here must not have to do with changing the future or changing the path they're on. It's all about restoring the relationship. Living by God's will isn't so much about changing the events of our lives. We've got to change this in our minds. It's not about should I move here or there? Should I take this job or that job? Should I marry this person or that person? Those questions are important. Okay, I'm not downplaying that. But the question we should be asking above those things is, how is my relationship with God? What pleases God? How can I live for him in the things that I'm doing? 
What brings me closer to him, so to speak? Because the truth is, God's plan for our lives is already set. Right? If God wasn't in control, then we have a totally different set of questions we've got to ask. But God does have a plan. This leads to the second point. The choice. Okay, so you've got the conviction and the choice. See, the choice has already been made by the will of God. Verse 20. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans. The clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Okay, so we already know Saul is king. They don't know. So they start casting lots. Now, the Israelites, they understood that there was no such thing as chance. Right? They were people who believed in the one true God who created heaven and earth. But when they cast lots by chance, it was a way to take the human element out of it. Okay, we're going to totally put it in God's hands where there's no question. So they cast lots, and Saul is chosen. And this is interesting because Saul is already chosen. So this is just for their benefit, that they would know it's not Samuel's choice. It's not our choice. It's God's choice, ultimately. Now, the problem is, after all of this, Saul, God's choice, doubly God's choice in our minds, is gone. Right? They pull back the curtain, they shine the spotlight, and right? it's kind of like, uh, what do you call it? Sound of music, right? The Von Keys family singers, and no one's there. Right? They shine the light, he's gone. Verse 22, so they inquire again of the Lord. They ask Samuel, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. So this dude is hiding. Right? All the people that came to Mizpah, right, they have baggage because they had to travel. They got tents, and they're looking for the king, and Saul is like hiding behind a suitcase. A pretty funny way to be introduced as the king, verse 23. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Okay, so kind of lame, right? I don't know how you'd feel if you're like, okay, this is God's king, and he's hiding. But then he stands up. And he's the tallest guy in all of Israel. And everyone's like, well, okay. You know, it's funny. Um, last week, or two weeks ago, at Easter, I was talking about Pascal's wager. You guys remember that? Okay, maybe no one remembers or cares. It's cool. Um, but I was talking about, you know, the cost-benefit analysis of living for God. And I said, if you have any more questions about it, don't ask me, right? You could ask Pastor Eric when he comes back from sabbatical because he's the smart one, right? And any of you guys who have been at Zoe for like a minute, you know that James is the godly one. So someone asked me, actually, after church, um, I guess I'm the approachable one, but someone asked me, they said, okay, so let me get this straight. Uh, James is the godly one, and Eric's the smart one. So how come you're, like, always up there preaching again? And I was like, touche, right? I don't know. I have no answer. Um, but then I was studying this week, and I was like, I got a verse for this guy, right? First Samuel 10, 23. Like, if you line me up with James and Eric, like, I'm not a head taller than James, but I probably am over Eric, right? It's that big brain, like, weighing him down, right, you know? Um, so that's why, dude. I mean, you're out there. I see you, man. I'm not going to, like, stare, but I see that person who talked to me. That's my answer, man. It's the Bible. You just got to submit to it. Now, I'm kidding, just to put it out there. I don't want to be one of those pastors who, like, leaves it opaque, saying some weird stuff. I am kidding. I have to cover my bases. But anyway... This is how the world works. It totally is. Saul is tall, and they feel good about it. Samuel says in verse 24, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people, and all the people shouted, Long live the king. All it took was one look at this guy standing at full height for the people to totally get on board. Right? Long live the king. This is our guide. This is the best. And through a certain lens, he is the best candidate possible. But if you notice Samuel's language, this is going to come up again. He says, do you what? Do you see him? What do your eyes show you? He's imposing. He's impressive. He is tall. He can lead us in battle. But what will God say in a few chapters after the Saul experiment fails? He's going to say, the Lord sees not as man sees. We see completely different. Man sees the outward appearance the flash, the strength, what looks good, God looks at the heart. Saul is specifically chosen to show the people something about themselves. Now, there's more to unpack here, too, beyond that. 
This is a very layered narrative. But if you go back to the luggage, let's go back to what Saul was doing when the lots were cast. He was hiding. He was hiding. What does that tell us about Saul? Do you think that that was good or do you think that was bad? Honestly, I feel like there might be some mixed opinions in this room. And I think it is both, honestly, in the text. That's kind of the MO of Saul early on. Like the the narrative builds it up for us where it's kind of gray. You don't know if this is going to go good or bad. Of course, we know how the story ends. But if you don't know, you see some good things, some great potential in him, but you also see enough red flags starting to appear that you get kind of worried. But I think it is good in a sense because it reveals that he's not a power-hungry guy, at least not at first. He is intimidated by a calling that is, in actuality, intimidating. You know, the world is full of Monday morning quarterbacks. I hate to use this football illustration, but I think you get what I mean. You watch the game on Sunday, and on Monday you're like, if only I was in there. I wouldn't have made any mistakes. I wouldn't have uh, thrown any incomplete passes or interceptions. Like, I know exactly what I would have done to be better. Put me in, coach, right? I dominate. I remember there was a segment on TV once where they found people who had, like, tweeted criticisms of professional athletes, and they brought them on TV. This is specifically about field goal kicking. They'd be like, come on, it was like 30 yards, like I could do that in my sleep. And they brought him on and they made them kick a field goal on TV. It was like on Fox Sports or something. And these guys were terrible, right? They're like kicking it like three feet and stuff. And they're getting humiliated on TV and then they interview them after and they're like, oh, you know, it's a lot harder when the spotlight is on you. And they're like, you know, the spotlight was on the athletes too, right? And they're just shaming them in front of everybody. But there's a lot of people where they think that this is easy, just watching from the outside. But Saul doesn't think that. Saul doesn't think that. And there's something to that, right? God requires humility for leadership. Okay, Saul, okay, we know Saul for his failings, but Saul doesn't start out as a failure. Saul is probably ahead of the game for most people. He's the most physically gifted guy in the whole country. He still thinks that he's not good enough. There's something to that, dude. I met so many people who think that they are like God's gift to creation, right? Saul doesn't do that. So it's good. But it isn't all good. In fact, it isn't even mostly good, in my opinion, because of the simple fact of context. The thing is, he already was anointed. I think we could give him a pass, right? If it's like, okay, he doesn't know he's going to be king. He's just trying to live on the farm, and then the lots are being cast, and they're like, Benjamin. He's like, oh, what? Benjamin's the smallest tribe. They're like, the Matrites. He's like, oh, dude. He starts heading toward the luggage, right? And when they say Saul, son of Kish, he just can't handle the pressure of the moment. But that's not it at all. He already knows. He's already been called. He's already received the anointing. So what's going on here? It's not just humility. This is refusal to answer the call of God on his life. And see, this is where it connects with us. And you might be saying, who are we supposed to identify here with? Saul or the people? Any human in this text. Because we all are supposed to live according to the will of God. Whether we're a prophet, king, or just a rando, no-name person, which is most of us. But it connects with all of us here because even though you and I are never going to be king of Israel, like Saul, we all have callings placed upon our lives by the word of God. Do we not? You say, what do you mean, pastor? We're not all preachers, right? We're not all missionaries. That's true. And yet, that's not the only way the Bible talks about calling. That's not the only way that the Bible places something upon you. If you look to the scripture, what does it talk about? It talks about how to be a good husband, how to be a good wife, how to be a faithful servant, how to be a good steward of everything that God has given you how to be a Christian, how to be a son or daughter or brother or sister. Calling isn't just about discerning what you might possibly become in some special way. Calling is also about devoting yourself to the person that you are according to the word of God. So are you answering his call? That's the question, really. Before we talk about, okay, what should I do later? Are you doing what you're supposed to be doing right now? I mean, it could be so practical. Fathers, are you raising your kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? I mean, you might be stressing out, right, agonizing. Should I send them to this school or that school? Should we move over here? Are there better opportunities? Should I put them in soccer or basketball? Not that those things aren't important, 
But are you doing what's actually been said already? Ephesians 6, 4, discipline and instruction of the Lord. Kids, are you honoring your father and mother? I know you might be like, oh, man, why'd you say that? It's just in the Bible. Husbands, are you loving your wives like Christ loved the church? Christians, are you seeking the Lord while he might be found? Christians, are you church-going Christians? Are you using the gifts that God has given you to serve others? 1 Peter 4.10. If you're married married and you're not loving your spouse, I mean, how is that different than just hiding in the luggage, really? If you're a professing Christian who is able to serve and doesn't serve at all because you're waiting for something, you're essentially hiding in the luggage. God's already told you who you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do. Now, you can get legalistic about this, so I'm not going to belabor the point, okay? You, you don't have to serve in any specific way. I mean, it's really where your heart is at, and if you're actually doing it, it's not about loving your wife in a special way. Like, you better go on date night twice a week or else you're in sin. It's not that. But it's according to the will of God that you know, are you living by it? See, there are two wills of God according to Scripture. Okay, that might be kind of confusing to you, but basically there are two ways that the Bible talks about the will of God. And the Reformers were really good about teaching this, about bringing this out. There's what is called the hidden will of God, okay, which is God's plan, God's sovereign decree. And we know that God has a plan, right? It's not like anything could have happened that would have kept Jesus from being born. It was going to happen at that time, at the proper time. God does have a plan. He has a wonderful plan for your life. That is true. He does. But God also has a revealed will. And God's revealed will is what we have in his word. The hidden plan is hidden, right? We don't know what it is. Sometimes he might reveal certain things to certain people. We see that in scripture, but generally it is secret. It is hidden. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We're supposed to live by faith, but he has given us his revealed will to live by. And we read in the scripture reading, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. See, when we ask this question, how can I live by the will of God? A lot of times I think what we're asking is, how can I figure out the secret will? That might not be for you to figure out. We should be asking, how can I live according to what God has already told me? See, usually, you know, if, let's say, let's just be practical. If you want to know where to move, don't ask God what city, because a lot of times, I don't think he's going to tell you. Okay, I, I feel like you could get impressions or, or stuff like that, and we might talk about that in a second. But instead of asking what city and just waiting for God to tell you or to give you signs, ask, are there sinful motives in me? Right, go before the Lord, search my heart, test my thoughts, give me pure and right desires. Help me to know if there are idolatrous reasons. I want to go here because I can make a lot of money. I want to go here because I want to have to deal with this or that. I'm running away from this person. Think of, don't, don't wait for Augustana song Boston to come up and be like, okay, I got to move to Boston. I heard someone say that before. Ask God to search you with his word. And this leads to the last point, the call. The call. We have the conviction where he talks to the people. We have the choice where he chooses Saul. We have the call. And this is where God takes Saul right away. Verse 25, it says, Then Samuel, okay, right after they find Saul and say, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people, what? The rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. He doesn't say, now this is the plan. Okay, we're going to build the capital city here, and we're going to set up the palace, and this is how the government structure is going to work. The first thing that they do is they write down the duties and rights of kingship. Where is that found? It's found in Deuteronomy 17. And James went to this a few weeks ago, so I'm not going to have you turn there. But it's the chapter in the law that already talked about God's will for kings. What would make a good king according to him? And let me summarize. You just got to be an Israelite to be Israel's king. You shouldn't get too many horses. You shouldn't go back to Egypt. You shouldn't have too many wives. Okay, it's pretty simple what you got to do. And then 
at the end of it, it says he needs to write down the law and read it so that he can learn to fear God and to live for him. And he says, if he does this, then he will have a good reign. He will be a good king. Nothing about infrastructure or military strategy or foreign policy or tips and tricks on leadership. Just read the word and do what it says. It's so simple that I feel like we almost want to just reject it outright. The truth is, God does tell us what to do. We might be thinking, okay, God, tell me what to do in this situation. God already told us what to do in every situation. Fear him, keep his commandments. He has given us a moral path. He has given us a lamp unto our feet. He gives us the key to wisdom. Now, does God give you impressions and feelings? I think he does, and he could. What is conviction? What is even our conscience if not that? Okay, conviction is from the Holy Spirit. You can feel convicted. But the thing is, the Bible never says that we will be held accountable to the feelings and premonitions that we were given. But it does say we will be held accountable to every word that God has spoken. At the end of the day, we can't know if a particular impression is from God or not. So understand this. If you want to live by the will of God, seek to live by the word of God. And that's the call that God places on Saul's life from the beginning. Remember that. Pay attention because this is going to come up in a couple chapters. But if you want to live, if you want to rule or whatever, serve whatever you're doing by the will of God, seek to do it by the word of God. And you and I will be held accountable for our obedience to what is revealed, not for our seeking after what is hidden. And Saul does go bad later, and we'll see that. But for us, do you have, do you have decisions to make? Are there things that you're thinking about? Are there things that are keeping you up at night? Are there things where you're seeking counsel from other people? Change your mindset. You should pray. You should bring yourself before. Of course, okay? Be open to like closed doors sometimes. Like you're like, I believe I can fly. I don't think you can. But change your mindset. Don't be paralyzed by what kind of method, what kind of parenting method or something. Instead, prioritize quality time with your kids in the word being obedient to what it says, being an example yourself of seeking after him, being intentional, teaching them the Bible. Don't agonize over what job to take, but agonize over whether or not you're a faithful worker with good motives, that you want to go to a job so that you could be a light, so that you could work for the Lord and not just for your own greed or your own status or something like that. Don't shop for churches for years of your short life wanting God to lead you to the right one. Find one that believes the gospel and preaches the word. And, you know, we're not trying to build a kingdom of Zoe here. If you go to another good church, that's good. That's cool. You know, praise God. Just get involved there. Okay, get involved there. Be faithful as a churchgoer there. Use your gifts to love the people. You know what to do. See, what is the will of God? The apostle Paul asked in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, your sanctification. What is the will of God? Your sanctification. And here's the thing, before we start wrapping this up, I think sometimes we think that if we can just figure out the will of God, if we can just know the right next step to take, then everything will just be smooth sailing, right? It'll be easy. It'll be fun. It'll feel good. That's not necessarily the case. That's never the case. If you look at the end of this chapter of this text, verse 26, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. Okay, so this is what you'd expect, right? He becomes king. It's unanimous. God chose him. Samuel's behind him. Of course, he's the tallest guy. I mean, what more do you want? And some people, they, they're pumped by it, right? They're like, I'm going to follow Saul wherever he goes. I'm going to go back to his hometown. And yet, verse 27, but some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present but he held his peace. It's good he held his peace. But do you notice that some people, no matter what happened, no matter what supernatural things happened, they're like, we don't want to follow this guy. He's the tallest guy. Still, he can't save us. I mean, I know that we think this. Oh, I married the wrong person because my marriage is hard. Marriage is hard. Even if you marry the right person. My kids are the wrong kids, right? Just follow, go down that path. Life is going to throw different things at you in the plan of God. The call isn't to try to get out of it. 
The call is to be faithful in it. And I know, I know some of you guys are going through hardship. You know, like I talked to you, our church is small enough where I like, I kind of generally know what's going on with a lot of you. Health issues, right? Relational problems. Life isn't easy. And I know that a message like this can be hard, right? Like just be obedient, just be faithful to what God has called you. It's hard, right? In the moment, you're like, I got to get out of it. Is there something I should change? At the end of this, I think we got to remember where this took place. Mizpah. You see that in verse 17? Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. What happened at Mizpah? You know, sometimes you go back to a place that's significant for you, right? You might go back to like where you first proposed or something to kind of like recharge your marriage, whatever. Go back to 1 Samuel 7. 1 Samuel 7. This is after the ark and terrible defeats and all these things. Verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Astaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Astaroth, and they served the Lord only. And Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. You guys remember just a few weeks ago, what happened after this was what we call revival. Actual, real revival. The last revival in their history at this point. This is no accident that he brings them back here. This was the place where they returned back to God last time and God delivered them. He's giving them a chance to turn back. He's trying to invoke those memories. God called them to the place where he met them last time. The reason he convicted them wasn't to condemn them but to urge them toward repentance, to urge them back toward him. And this is, I think, where it connects with all of us, whether you're going through hard times, whether you're walking far from God, whether you're not even a Christian. The call is the same for all of us. Turn back to God. No matter where you're going, how far you've wandered, what you're struggling with, how difficult life is, we got to turn to him. Because that's where the hope is. See, the thing is, none of us can always live by the will of God. None of us are going to be able to stand firm all the time. None of us are perfect. Saul wasn't perfect. But there was someone who was. And he did live perfectly by the will of God. You know who I'm talking about? Jesus, right, in the Garden of Gethsemane, after living for God in every single way, according to the law, his entire life, he's praying in the garden. And what he has to do is so stressful that he's sweating drops of blood. But what does he say? He says, not my will, but your will be done. And he goes to the cross and he dies for sinners like you and me. It says it was the will of God that he was crushed for our iniquities and our unfaithfulness. Jesus lived by the will of God because we couldn't do it all the time. And he died for us so that we could start doing it. For those of you going through hardship, look to Christ. These afflictions, which seem so terrible, will in the end be remembered as light and momentary. I'm not saying this from my vast wisdom. I'm saying it from the word of God. Look to him. He might take you through the valley of the shadow of death in his will. That doesn't mean that you're out of his will, but he will be with you. Psalm 23. We'll close here. I was watching another sermon. Same church, actually, for the 14-year-old wife or whatever. Um, But I was watching a sermon from this church, and it was the main pastor. And it was a kind of a shocking sermon because it was a Sunday like any other Um, But he said in the beginning, he said, I have an announcement to make. And he was the founding pastor of that church. And he wasn't like super young anymore. But he said, I really believe that God is calling me to leave our church and to go plant another church in this difficult area. And people were shocked, right? They're like, what? Like, didn't expect this at all. But he told the story, you know, how he had kind of, this place had been on his heart. And, you know, people had prayed for him. And he had kind of felt that he should be going here. But then he said, at the end of the announcement, he said, even though there are all these signs or whatever, 
he said, I want you to turn to the book of 2 Timothy. And in fact, why don't you guys turn there real quick as we close. But he said, turn to the book of 2 Timothy. And he said, this is going to be the last series. They would preach through books of the Bible. This is going to be the last series that I'm going to preach. And I want to leave you with this. And he said, because at the end of the day, it's not about chasing the feeling. Right? It's not about the premonition or the impression. He said, at the end of the day, I just want to be faithful. And this is what Paul says at the end of his life. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We've got to adjust our paradigm. Adjust your paradigm. Seek to be faithful in doing the will of God. And you won't go wrong. You won't go on the wrong path if you seek to be faithful to him. And instead of asking, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? You already know where to find the answer to those questions. So live in such a way where at the end you can ask yourself the questions from 2 Timothy 4. Did I fight the good fight? In the race, did I run hard? Did I keep the faith? And hopefully, by the grace of God, you can say, yes. Yes, I lived by the will of God. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this afternoon. God, and I know that we are all in different places, Father. So just generally for us, for this church, for these people. God, I pray, God, for your grace. I pray that you would help us to live according to your word. I pray that you would help us in our failures, God, that you would be gracious to us. I pray that you would give us wisdom for our decisions, the decisions we need to make. And yet, God, I pray that we would not be a people of excuses. I pray that we would not be an unfaithful people. God, I pray that our hearts would be captured by your word. God, that's what we desire. God, that's all we want. We know that we are weak to follow, but we ask for your help. God, I pray that Zoe would be known as a place where maybe we don't have all the outward things, but we seek to live according to what you have revealed. Thank you, Father, for your word. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.